jumping. The question is, what does jumping help them do? Leslie. Being the goodest boy on the planet. <laughs> well, that's an automatic yes. But beyond that? Exercise? Exercise? No, I'm afraid not. This actually helps them hunt. Oh. It helps them hunt for their prey, especially when they're going after something small like a rat. You can just picture the dog jumping up and pouncing on the prey. So those are beautiful Taiwanese dogs that we have here. I think you've both seen them Hence before. Great the stories. Boy. Yeah. Love it. And you can always identify them by the pointy ears that they have. So that's our brain game for today. this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? It's the premier spectacle of the late summer, a tradition dating back centuries. It appears on tourist posters advertising Taiwan abroad, and it always attracts large domestic crowds, too. And it's just been canceled. Despite Taiwan's success in tackling COVID-19, there are some events, it seems, that are just too big to hold. Though apparently once commonplace across Taiwan, these days you can only see the annual event called Changgu in Chinese in just two small towns here. The bigger of the two events is held in Ilan County's Tocheng Township on Taiwan's northeast coast. It's been called off this year in an effort to keep too many people from gathering in one place. The news has been a real letdown for locals, although those who suffer from vertigo may be secretly pleased. This event pits teams of five against one another. They struggle up an obstacle course in a race to the top. It's hard going from the start. First, they must shimmy up wooden stilts slathered in slippery tar. Reaching the race platform on top of the poles is a real achievement, but that's just the beginning. From there rises a pincushion of spiky structures built from woven bamboo stakes. Each of these spiky towers is topped with a flag. Each team must scramble up its assigned bamboo tower and try to capture its flag first. Officially, this event is held in honor of the ghosts said to wander the earth for a month in the late summer. Tied to the bamboo towers, for instance, are food offerings for the ghosts to enjoy. But for the living, the spectacle of the race and the real dangers involved are the attraction. It's exhilarating to watch, dizzying to take part in, and in the past, it has sometimes turned deadly. But while the race has been called off, there's no need to be disappointed. An alternative event has sprung up in its place. When the event had to be called off, Lin Liansheng, director of the organization that puts it on, was left in a difficult position. The ghosts the event honors still need appeasing, after all. So what Mr. Lin and his team decided to do was to ask the gods for special permission to do something a little bit different this year. Their idea was a cook-off contest featuring innovative gourmet offerings for the ghosts and a worship ceremony for the gods at the end. With the contest, everyone's happy. Local people get to see some dramatic cooking action, the gods are still worshipped, the ghosts still get to eat their fill, and the government's happy too, because crowd size will be limited and the wearing of masks and social distancing can be enforced if needed. Mr. Lin joins me today to talk a little bit about the cancelled event, but also about his team's creative alternative. 
Call it a COVID cook-off if you like. First of all, it's worth pointing out that this isn't the first year Tochang Township's Changgu race has been called off. Concerns about safety led the government to ban events like these altogether for a period of more than 40 years after World War II. Once held across Taiwan, the event has since dwindled, as we've seen. And Mr. Lin says that reviving Tochung Township's version of the event took a lot of work. Townspeople started pushing for a revival and got permission, but there was a lot more than the race itself to resurrect. Traditionally, there were a range of rituals and other events held in the days and weeks leading up to the main race. Mr. Lin says Tochang Township's event only made a comeback during the 1990s, based on testimony of older people who remembered what it had once been like. As we said in the introduction, there is one other town that's brought the Changgu competition back, Hengchun, far away on Taiwan's southern tip. But Mr. Lin says that Tochang's event is the more traditional of the two, and it's ten times bigger as well. The size of Tochung's event is normally a good thing, a sure sign that the contest will be an exciting one. But this year, that's not the case. The government's discouraging gatherings of more than a thousand people, Mr. Lin says. Which means that while the smaller events down south can go ahead in a slightly scaled-back form, the big Tochung event is a no-go. But Tochang has a lot more to offer than just this one annual event, and that's where the idea of a cooking contest came from, showing off the township's bounty. Tochang sits at the edge of a well-watered and fertile plain, with farms that provide excellent local produce. And if that wasn't enough, it also sits alongside one of Taiwan's richest fishing grounds, too. The Pacific Kuroshio Current flows just offshore, and Mr. Lin says that the waters surrounding Turtle Mountain Island, a volcano off the coast, provide an abundance of fresh seafood. Mr. Lin says the contest has only two criteria. The first is creativity, and the second is the inclusion of local characteristics that showcase Tochung and its food culture. So far, 20 entries have come in, and not just from the local area either. Mr. Lin says that people from across Taiwan have been invited to take part. The cooking contest might not be quite as dangerous as the normal program, but Mr. Lin says that to ensure maximum excitement, the team has made sure to create some high stakes. There are generous cash prizes for the winners. All the entries, winning and otherwise, will be presented to the ghosts at a final religious ceremony. So who gets to decide who the winners are? Judging the contest will be members of Elon County's Gourmet Association, as well as culinary instructors from local schools. We've had a bit of a sneak peek, actually. 
A few dishes made an appearance at a recent press conference to advertise the event. One was a soup with pork shaped into the form of a pig and bathing in the broth, perhaps a nod to hot springs not so far from Tochong. But Mr. Lin says these are actually just samples of the sort of creativity the judges are looking for. They're not actual entries, just teasers of what we can expect once the real competition gets underway. The actual 20 entries are still tightly under wraps, and we'll just have to wait until next Wednesday, September 16th, to find out who wins. That will also be the day of the ceremony presenting the offerings to the ghosts. So we'll get to take a look at winners and runners-up alike. Plus, Mr. Lin says his own team is putting together creative entries of their own that aren't going to be in the contest, but will still be presented. Altogether, he expects about 200 tables filled with offerings. So the ghosts will have received their annual offering, and the gods too will be thanked for a year that's so far been free of typhoons, earthquakes, and the worst of COVID-19. It might not pack the adrenaline punch people have come to expect from Tochung during Ghost Month, but this cook-off isn't actually a half-bad idea. It seems that this year at least, it's already received the god's seal of approval. Maybe in future years, this cook-off can become a tradition in its own right. It can be held alongside the big race, another feature besides size that sets Tochung's event apart and an alternative way of honoring the ghosts for those of us who are a bit squeamish about heights. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Let's make this clear from the very beginning. Although I'm an omnivore, when it comes to hunting and killing my own meat, I'm a vegetarian through and through. But when my godfather passed away recently, I joined the men of the Puyuma tribe on a ritual hunt to mark his passing. I'm Andrew Ryan, and in today's Ear to the Ground, I bring you into the darkness on a hunt that I will never forget. And ear to the ground.
We've parked our car on the side of a pitch-black seaside road in the southeastern county of Taidong. I'm with a young hunter from the Puyuma tribe who's a policeman by day. His name is Enji, and we've come to inspect his traps. We step into the tall grass by the side of the road with only Enji's headlamp lighting the way. Thankfully, we're wearing rubber boots. After all, there are snakes in these parts. Enji tells me there's a Chinese idiom that goes, literally, it means to beat the grass and scare away the snakes. People usually use it to refer to someone acting rashly in a way that arouses your enemy's suspicions. But here, we're using it literally. We want the snakes to know that we're coming and get out of the way. Enji has set 12 traps, and he shows me the pieces of paper he's tied to tall blades of grass to show him where the traps are. He tells me the old men of the tribe will sometimes put out as many as 30 traps, and they memorize the location without the use of markers. Soon we arrive at the first trap. That one got away. But the next rat wasn't so lucky. Enji pulls it out and holds it up. He brushes off the ants and sets the trap back in position. And then he hands the rat to me. And I pause for a second, and he asks if I'm okay holding it. Now, of course, there's only one answer to that question, so I reach out and take it by the tail. At the next trap, we find a rat that's still alive and struggling. Enji moves quickly to put it out of its misery and to protect himself, too, because rats can be vicious when under duress. When he's finished, I ask him what the most humane way is to kill a rat, and he holds it up before me with one hand on the neck and one on the tail, and he pulls. Quick and relatively painless. He hands the second rat to me, and I clutch it by the tail in a tight fist along with the first one. My recording equipment is clutched equally tightly in my right hand. I continue to follow him closely, taking large, unsure steps through tall grass that is up to my chest, each footfall landing on uneven ground. We eventually return to the camp with three rats, the largest of which is the size of a small cat. Enji pulls out a hand torch and begins to burn off the hair. It's a process that takes about 10 minutes, and soon the smell of burning hair and flesh fills the darkness. We spend the night at the campsite, as is tradition. Now usually, when the hunters are gathered together, they'll sing. But tonight, it's quiet. That's out of deference to Chen Baba, my Puyuma godfather, who had been cremated just two days earlier. At about 2 a.m., I climb into one of the cars and try to get some sleep. By 4.30, the faintest hint of light is easing across the black night sky, and the sound of chirping birds greets the new day. The elders head out to check their traps one more time, and the younger men cook them a breakfast of savory noodles. Before we leave the campsite, one of the elders fills three clear plastic bottles with rice wine and food for Chen Baba, and he hangs them from a tree. It's a final farewell to a cherished friend and a beloved father before we head back to the village with between 50 and 60 rats 
an offering to the family of the deceased. With an ear to the ground, I'm Andrew Ryan. Pull yourself together already. It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast, and this is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. How are you doing today, Ellen Chu? I'm doing just fine. That's good. We have a fun show today, Ellen. We're going out. That's right. We're going to leave the studio. We haven't done that in a while. I know. I mean, first of all, it's because of the COVID-19. And Mm -hmm. secondly, we have been pretty lazy not moving our (laughs) self Outside. Hey, we work hard, man. I know, but you know, it's pretty hot right now in Taiwan. It is hot, but we have a refreshing show for you. We do. We are going to make the beer run of all beer runs. Okay, so we're going (laughs) to run and hop. Hop, I like that. Hops. Hops. Well done, Ellen Chu. Did you plan that? No, it just came out. <laughs> just came out like it always does. It does. Uh-huh. Uh, so we are actually going to be heading to the oldest brewery in all of Taiwan. It's more than 100 years old. Right. It, well, in Taiwan, especially in, uh, I think around Taiwan, there's like four brewery. And this is the smallest, but the oldest. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this used to be like kind of run by the nation. Uh-huh. It is now, I think, privatized. I think so. Pseudo-privatized. Pseudo, I think. That's right. And of course, this is the brewery that makes Taiwan beer. So if you've been to Taiwan and had Taiwan biru, mm-hmm. then this is the you know place where they made it. Apparently, like uh, as much as 80% of the beer that's consumed in Taiwan comes from this company that makes Taiwan mm-hmm. beer. I had I no idea until you know, I started doing research. The company name has Monopoly in it, <laughs> right? <laughs> it so it's Monopoly. It was, oh, I don't think it's a Monopoly anymore, but it was at the time. Right. So we're going to actually be taking a little tour of the factory. I hear they may be serving us some beer. Oh. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to figure out what to do with my scooter. Well, I'm not really a drinker of any kind of alcohol, so you probably take, you know, two Oh, my for goodness. All. Drinking for two. Right. All righty. I'm going to sample it, but not really drinking it, okay? Well, I tell you, I'm really looking forward to this show. Okay. I've been looking forward to this for a while. This is going to be a fun okay, one. Okay, so hopefully everyone can feel the refreshingness, okay? That's right. Maybe pop open a beer and have a drink as you're listening. All right. Yeah. So we check out what's on our menu. Okay. Let's do it. In our first course, we'll find out more about the Jianguo Beer Factory, the Taipei Factory, and why they want to turn it into a cultural park. That's right. In our second course, we're going to take a tour of the Taipei Brewery and learn how they make beer. We're going to actually be getting a tour from a guy who's been working there for 40 years. Wow. And third and final course, of course, we will be sampling some beer. That's right. But first, to start things off, we have a song. Okay. And this is called Aiqing Pichu. <laughs> yes. It, and it's by Henry Xu. That's right. And it's in Taiwanese. Uh, how do you say that? 
Okay, well, don't count on us, okay? Because our Taiwanese <laughs> really bad. That's so, so listen to Henry. That's right. And we'll be back in just a moment in our first course with the Taipei Brewery. First course of today's Feast Meets West, and we are here with Vicky Wong, who is going to tell us why it's so important to preserve the Taipei, Taipei Brewery, Brewery as a cultural, a cultural park. park. I'm very excited about this. We're sitting actually inside the brewery right now. Right. So Vicky will be telling us because they have been doing this and approaching them since in the 1990s. That's amazing. It's I amazing. can't believe that you've and been working on this. I know, for so such long. a long time. So, hi, Vicky. Hi. Hi, everyone. Actually, maybe start off by telling us, where are we? <laughs> right. Actually, we're in the middle of Taipei. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's a bustling city, and we're right in the middle of it. And this is a brewery uh, that specializes in making beer starting in 1919. Wow. Over 100 years. And, and this is like, this must be the oldest beer factory in Taiwan, right? Exactly. It's been the only one uh, until 1960s. And it's been uh, offering Taiwan the best quality beer and mm. with the Taipei water, which is the best quality mm. in throughout Taiwan. So why is it important to keep this original brewery where we are right now, which was constructed in 1919? Why is it important to keep it as a cultural asset? Not only it's a heritage, it's also a, a memory for all Taiwanese to remember. Then you can see through the development of the factory itself to see the development of the urban planning of Taipei City. For over 100 years, it's been making beer. So that means the handicraft, the uh, um, technology, everything is very traditional where compared to modern plants, it's uh, using computerized technologies to make beer. 
I'm so excited because in a moment, actually, in our second course, we're going to be following around one of the uh, men that actually was involved in making beer for many years here. He's been here 40, 40 years. years already. And he's going to actually show us the traditional equipment and the rooms and the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, so, you know, preserving this place isn't just about the physical space. It's also about the people and the kind of what happens in this space that's important, right? So I think, you know, this is where they preserve the story that happened here. Mm-hmm. So it's all the way from uh, when the Japanese was over here, mm-hmm. was colonizing in Taiwan, and all the way in the, you know, to, to now, to the present day. Mm. So many stories within these walls. You've been working on this for like 20 years now? Well, don't give away that. <laughs> It has nothing to do with your age. You started when she was 10 years right, old. Yeah. <laughs> it's a family thing, right? <laughs> right. We understand that. Yeah. Mm. We started in 1997 when we realized there are actually three huge plants, um, semi-abandoned or uh, not used in um, Taipei, central Taipei. The Taipei Brewery is the only one that still has the production line. All the technologies, all the facilities, and all the labors are still here. Are you hoping to preserve the space as a working brewery? I think uh, the process of making beer can be very um, visualized here um, if we preserve all the production line and all the knowledge of how to make beer. And perhaps in the future it can turn into a very educational uh, park, in heritage park, where people can leisure, dine, and still understand the culture of how to make beer. Mm. That sounds great. So I guess, you know, beer is a major part of the Taiwanese food and beverage, you know, culture. But, you know, a lot of people probably don't know how the Taiwan beer has come about or how it's produced. Mm. So this would be something for people to learn more and also dig into our heritage a Mm. little bit more. When you walk into here, what do you feel? What do you think? How does it move you? Architecturally, it's um, a layer after layers of... um, building up where you it's you can still see um, things from different ages, different time, and all the um, efforts that's been put into throughout the time. And not it's not only about making beer, but also about a group of people who are um, working really hard so that this craft can prolong. Mm. And um, when they retire, um, probably no more people can actually know how to make um, these uh, wonderful beer with hands mm-hmm. and not with machines and also no one will know how to operate the uh, pre-war um, facilities anymore. Mm. So I think those are some of the legacies that this factory has which we should um, remember. Mm. Well, I'm really excited because I know in our second course we're actually going to get a tour of yeah, this brewery. I think so. And we're going to meet one of those people who actually carries those stories with him. Mm-hmm. And I think in our third course, we're also going to be sampling some beers. Yes. You know, I can't wait. I, you know, drove my scooter here today. I don't know if I'm going to be able to drive it home after this. Well, you know, <laughs> you should be responsible. So we're not going to ride your scooter back. That's right. We should always tell people don't, don't drink, drink and, and drive. drive. Okay. All right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Vicky, for uh, bringing us into the Taipei Brewery. And uh, we look forward to seeing what else today has to offer. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. But first, a song by Xu Yuyun called Lanse Pijo Hai, or Blue Sea of Beer. There's much more to come when the feast continues. Mm-hmm.
Standing in this amazing room with what looked like four very large golden colored, I don't know, vats. They're used for making beer, I'm sure. Right. Distillers, uh, I think we'll call them, right? Well, we're, we, fortunately, we have somebody we can ask. Okay, so we are very honored that we're interviewing this person from Taipei Brewery. He is the Taipei Brewery Union Vice Chair, Mr. Wu. Right. Excellent. So we want to welcome Mr. Wu Shurong. Thank you so much for being here. Okay. So they're taking um, what is it, barley? And they're into malt. They're they're I guess they're cooking it so it becomes sweeter, right? Right. Wow. Taipei Brewery, actually, we have an additional, uh, well, cooker, right? Yeah. So basically that's because we add rice into the formula. So basically we have a place where we boil the rice. So a lot of actually countries in Asia would use rice to make beer unless they didn't have enough rice for them to eat, right? Because I think that's the most productive, I think, you know, farm product that we have around Asia area. But, you know, I have a question regarding these different uh it all looks the same but they all have different function for mm-hmm. this one it's actually what we were saying making the uh barley into malt mm-hmm. and then over there is the distiller uh-huh. and then over here is the one that we said about cooking the rice and, and the then the final one mixing all the formula into it and they add the hops at right. that point and that's when they start to ferment it <laughs> 等它化完了以后移转到我们卖吃冷却室才进入到发酵的过程。Okay. So this is only the process where they're sweetening everything. Right. Is that what you call it? I'm sure that's not the uh, technical term for it. <laughs> so somebody's going to look it up for okay. us. So thank you for that. But this is just the process where they're cooking everything. What is it called? Glycation. Glycation. Yeah. Oh, like glycerol. Right. Or like 
Glycemic. Glycemic, right. Yes, so it's, it's related to sugar. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was looking at all of the process for creating beer, and it's very, very complicated. It's like chemistry. It's definitely like chemistry. Right. This is not just an art. It's also no. a science. Right. This is some of the Oh, so they're copper. Right. That's why they're so shiny. Mm-hmm. So they come four uh, to a grouping of them, and there are only about ten groups of these left in the world. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is a state of the art. <laughs> state of the art, and also very historical place that we're standing right. here. I think everybody could hear the echo in this room too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Wu says that he doesn't drink any beer because he works here every day and he's working with the beer every day, but I don't know if I believe that. He drinks Gaoliang and also, you know, all the hard liquors. I think that's probably what it is, right? Maybe not the, it's not strong enough. <laughs> so we're climbing some stairs off to the next location to see where they ferment it. But I don't think that they're actually making beer in here anymore. So there's another area where they're making beer on site, but not in this building. It is like a maze in here. This would be a great site for a horror film. We're in a uh, big hallway here, and he's showing us photos of, of different parts of right. life in the factory. I thought that one with the rice bag was really interesting. Right. So they have a test for all the uh, staff when they enter the uh, factory. They have to pass the examination where they carry a 30 kg rice bag. And how far do they have to carry it? So 30 meters? Within two minutes, back and forth. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I would pass the test. (laughs) Okay, so they only have a written exam these days. They don't have the uh, physical tests. All right. Because in the old days, they have to carry all the rice inside the factory. He's actually been working here for 40 years, set to retire in about 20 months' time. Okay, so this is where all the wart treatment Okay, so, so the wort is wort what? is actually the fer- fermenting uh, formula. It's the stuff that goes into right. the fermentation process. So the hot wort is received into the whirlpool to settle down and the hot sludge. Then the wort is cooled down to 6 degrees Celsius by heat exchanger. So the cold sludge formed during cooling process and thrown out by the... Centrifugal separator. Oh, so it's thrown out. They don't use that. Right. Okay, very Mm. interesting. So it takes about two hours for it to cool down. So from here, then it goes on to the next place where it's going to be fermented. So it hasn't actually started to be fermented yet. Wow. So you should drink your beer slowly. Yes. So I think this whole thing is just telling me that we just need to uh, cherish what we have when we're drinking our beer and drink mm-hmm. it slowly, like you said. So this is where all the fermentation mm-hmm. is going on. And there are open top, uh, what looks like pools, where the, uh, the mixture will sit. So every Wow. So the development of the beer happens here. Mm-hmm. So basically when it first came from the ward treatment, they come in here, the color is dark, 
and then once it started tea color yeah right a tea color and then day by day it actually started to foam up mm -hmm. and then that's the, the process of growing and then later on the foam comes down mm -hmm. and that's when it's ready for us to drink. So in this room, it's going to stay about six to eight days in those different pools. And it goes into the beer barrel. Alrighty. Getting closer to being able to drink it. So Mr. Wu says that in the past, when they were using uh, this particular facility, the beer would taste slightly different depending on the batch. Right, and depending on the process of fermentation and everything. But now, you know, when things are going into a factory and also computerized, you know, everything could be standardized. Yeah, so there's probably not much difference in the way the beer tastes. But just because they can control the process incredibly well these days, that doesn't mean that there aren't irregularities. Mr. Wu tells us about one such event, which occurred on March 31st, 2000. There was a big earthquake, right? He's wondering why did somebody um, splash me with beer, right? And then he realized that it wasn't somebody splashing, but there was an earthquake and all the uh, pool of beer was like spilling out. <laughs> so, you know, to be sensitive and professional, he ran out immediately. Yes, rather than drinking it. Right. <laughs> I don't think it was drinkable at that point. No. <laughs> wow. Wow, I feel like we're in the dungeon now. The basement. <laughs> Whoa, it's dark. <laughs> Wow. So we're in the oldest building on the brewery site, built in 1919. So it's more than 100 years old. He's pointing out the columns are very fat. That's how you can tell it's such an old building. So they built the buildings very, um, very sturdy. Because With all the uh, column that's really big because they're air raids. Mm -hmm. so, the U.S. bombed right. Taiwan during World War II. Right, so they need to make sure the building was stand. Wow. Wow, this looks like the modern factory now. So this is the, the special place where they create the special beers. Right. So basically, this is the Jingyang, which is kind of like the uh, the genuine uh, mm -hmm. brew. Mm -hmm. okay? The genuine brew. brew. So basically, this is more modernized. Mm -hmm. And as you can see that, you know, you can smell it. So because of the pandemic, they've got a, the orders have been reduced for these special right. beers. Oh. <laughs> I was wondering if I'd had beer from this uh, factory before, the one that we're standing in now, and he said uh, he can treat us to some. Right, and he said, you know, how big is your glass? Yes. yes, because I will be taking a scooter, so I can't be drunk driving. Yeah. When we come back in just a moment, in our third course, we're going to be sampling some of the brews produced by the Taiwan Tobacco and Liquor Corporation, 
But first, another song. This is Ibei Bing Pijo, a glass of cold beer by Wu Peiya. Listening to Feast Meets West. Third course. We're back on the third course of today's Feast Meets West. We're now in a private room upstairs in the brewery, and Mr. Wu Shurong, who's been working at the Taipei Brewery for 40 years, has brought out seven different bottles of beer for us to sample. We've worked our way through most of them by the time I've realized that we've gone from the lightest to the strongest. If you have the, the strongest one first, then you can't taste the flavors of any of the other beers. So you have to start with the weakest and then go to the strongest. So you can taste all the layers. Mm, I, I feel the layers. All right. What do you feel about the layers of this American IPA? It's really bitter. I love it. You love it? This is my favorite one. Oh, I like a nice IPA. There's more. More? Uh, I think we're good. Stout. Oatmeal stoked. We haven't had them all yet. It's a black label. Oh, no. If you look at all these beers, we've had how many? One, two, three, four, five. We've tried six beers, and we're going on to the seventh beer in maybe ten minutes. Okay. So this last one is called Dong Bao Xi So... Falling to the east and like leaning to it's, the west. It's just basically the oozy feeling. Look how dark that is. So this is 6.5% alcohol. This is the strongest beer of all of the beers we've tried. Just by smelling, I think I get drunk. Look at all these beers. American IPA, Irish Red Ale, Osmanthus Herb Baby, Taipei Blonde, 18 Days. Vice beer. Vice beer. Cheers. Cheers. So it's it's the most bitter and yes. it has the highest level of alcohol. Definitely. And Ellen Chu has been pouring her beer into my cup for everyone. Right. He's getting it for everyone. So I was supposed to, you know, take my scooter back to work today, but I don't think that's going to happen. At least someone has to be, you know, sober, right? Later on. Designated driver. 
Yeah. Taking one for the team, Ellen, That's too. That's right. Relax. We're not doing any recording later. All right, let's finish <laughs> all of them. Okay. <laughs> so how does this feel compared to the American IPA? It's more bitter, definitely. It has a soy sauce taste to it. This one's, I think it's sweeter. So this one has more alcohol in it. And Once then... <laughs> it hit the bitter part, you know, you just lose it. Well, you're, I mean, you prefer the Osmanthus one, right? Mm -hmm. This is your favorite? Right. And you liked, did you like this one? I like the 18, actually. You like the 18 as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. I would choose probably also 18 days and uh, the IPA. So did you get that? Ellen liked the 18 days beer, which is the freshest of all the beers with an expiration of just 18 days, and I agreed. But for our second beers, we diverged. She chose the Osmanthus beer with its floral flavors, which Mr. Wu says is a spring beer, and I went for the bitter American IPA, more of a winter beer for bitter Americans. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. Before we leave, we get talking with Mr. Wu, and after sampling all that beer, he shares some of his memories of what it was like working at the Taipei Brewery over the last 40 years. Coming to work, he says, is like stepping into a sauna. When you're mashing or converting the starches to sugar, it's usually over 40 degrees Celsius or over 100 Fahrenheit in the brewery. You'd be comfortable in shorts, but when the beer's fermenting, it can be as cold as 10 degrees Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit. You have to put on a thick jacket or you'll catch a cold. He tells us he began working at the brewery when he was 23. Did he think he'd work here for his entire career? No, he says, it was a beautiful accident. But work at a state-run corporation is stable, and he says all his colleagues got along really well together. A lot of them were single at the time, and when they got off the late shift, they'd hang out together, go hiking and whatnot. It felt like one big family, he says. They had similar interests, and they'd drink together, of course, but they'd never get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, he says there were about seven to 800 employees, of which 86 worked with him in the fermentation division. These days, there are only about 50 or so employees left in production, just enough to keep the plant running. But the yeast needs to be used often, he says, in order to keep it fresh and tasting good. Mr. Wu says that the life of a beer is similar to the life of a person. It has its peaks, and it's better if the beer is produced and sold when it's at its peak. Okay, so please write to us at P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. And of course, email us at androo at rti.org.tw. So in five weeks' time, we're going to come back and sample some beer made from 100-year-old yeast. But next week, in the meantime, we actually have something that's slightly related. We're going to mm -hmm. sample something else that gets better with age, and that's vinegar. Hmm. And we're going to bring you the moving story behind a very specific vinegar that was created in the mountains of Shinju. So now we have one final song. Mm-hmm. It's called... I love Taiwan beer. Taiwan beer. And it's by Rogu, Pi, Fei Wu, and Piao Chong. Oh, wow. These are crazy bands. I know. We're going to love it. All right. Okay. For Feast Suits House, I'm Andrew Ryan. And this is Ellen. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.